finally occurred to me that we can't just tell our children they are gifted. They probably already know they're different from other kids, but we need to help them understand what that giftedness means, all the pros and cons. It needs to be a long conversation. And instead, the message kids were getting, oh, you're identified, you're in a gifted program. Okay, that just simply means you're smarter than everybody else and you ought to be getting A's. That's not the message we want to give. Welcome to Tilt Parenting, a podcast featuring interviews and conversations aimed at inspiring, informing, and supporting parents raising differently wired kids. I'm your host, Debbie Reber, and this week we're going to be talking about the G word, specifically how to help gifted kids become their own best self-advocates. To talk about this with us, my guest is Deb Douglas. She is the founder of GT Carpe Diem, and the author of The Gifted Kids Guide to Self-Advocacy, which was published by Free Spirit Publishing. Deb has been an expert in student voice for over 16 years, advocating for gifted children in the upper Midwest of the United States and beyond. She led her first GT Carpe Diem workshop in 2002, and her advocacy for gifted kids grew out of her own life experience as a student, mother, and teacher. Deb has a powerful approach to helping kids learn how to advocate for themselves as learners, and she is going to break it all down for us in this episode. I hope you enjoy it. And by the way, even if your child isn't formally identified as gifted, this is just a plain good old episode for how kids can learn how to advocate for themselves and the benefits of self-knowledge and self-discovery. Before I get to that, if you haven't had a chance to check out my new book, Differently Wired, don't forget you can download the first chapter and the table of contents at tiltparenting.com slash book. And if you have read it already and like what you read, I'd be grateful if you would consider leaving a review on Amazon or on Goodreads. More reviews mean more visibility for the book. And I really want to make sure that the people who would benefit from its message can easily find it. Thank you so much. And now here is my conversation with Deb Douglas. Hey, Deb, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I am happy to have you on. I'm looking forward to this conversation. When I initially reached out to you, I mentioned that we've had a conversation about how parents can be better advocates for their kids. But we haven't had this conversation about how kids themselves can advocate for themselves. So I'm looking forward to that. But before we get to the meat of our conversation, could you just take a few minutes to introduce yourself? Tell us about your work in the world and your connection to this subject matter. Oh, gladly. I began my educational career quite a long time ago as a high school English and speech teacher. And then I was a stay-at-home mom. And then because of my background in language arts, was asked to come back and do some pull-out programming in the gifted program in the school district we were in, in Wisconsin. And I loved doing junior grade books discussions with gifted elementary kids. It was so exciting. But I began to realize that this pull-out program was, was very nice, but it wasn't really addressing all kids' needs. And so I was trying to figure out what would be a better way of approaching gifted education, went back to school to get a master's in curriculum and instruction for gifted children, and during that time was hired as the full-time first resource teacher and then gifted education coordinator in that same school district of about 5,000, 6,000 students. And then I spent about 20 years in that program, coordinating that program, and really built it into what I felt was a well organized, um, research-based, continuous, systematic way of providing for the needs of the gifted kids in the district. But there still seemed to be something kind of missing. And and um, I realized we needed to help focus on the social-emotional needs of our kids as well. And as part of that, I began in my conversations with students saying, what is it that you need? What is it that you want um, that will make school better for you? And most of the kids did not know how to answer. And I realized that I really hadn't allowed them to be partners in their education, that we had been doing gifted education to them and through their parents. But I really wanted to find a way for the students to really feel like they were taking the lead. And that's when I began focusing on self-advocacy. And so what do you do today? You know, how does that actually show up in your work? Well, I um, retired early from that position and I've been an educational consultant for the past 10 years now primarily doing workshops for gifted students, um, what I call a one-day jump start to self-advocacy, a way for us to um, begin to help students focus on 
why they might want to self-advocate and how they can do that successfully. Um, I also do professional development for teachers, teams of educators who can support the gifted students' self-advocacy in their districts. And I also, um, fortunately, have been invited to speak at a lot of conferences, both here in the U.S. and most recently at the ETCHA conference in Dublin, Ireland, uh, last summer at the World Conference in Sydney, Australia. So I'm I'm having wonderful experiences to meet people from around the world and, and share my passion for helping gifted kids speak out and craft their own route through school and through life. That's fantastic. And, you know, I think self-advocacy is just one of those things that's so important for our kids to develop, you know, especially as we want them to launch successfully and be able to really understand their strengths and their weaknesses or lagging skills and then know how to get what they need and support themselves. So can you kind of walk us through, I guess, you know, I want to talk about why it's so important for gifted kids to have these skills. But, you know, at what age is it even something that is a skill that they can begin developing or that you start working with kids? Well, my workshops are intended for kids in transition from, for instance, in the States here from elementary to middle school or from middle school to high school. But I believe that we as parents and as educators um, should be helping gifted kids recognize their needs and learn to ask for what they need as early as possible. Here in the United States, especially, elementary schools may be quite good at providing for the needs of gifted kids. And especially if they're in a classroom where the teacher knows them well and knows how to differentiate work. But by middle school, frequently kids are in more heterogeneous settings and teachers have a whole lot more um, individual students they're responsible for and may not know the students as well as an elementary teacher who has them all day, all year. Plus, by the time our kids are approaching adolescence, they are less likely to want us as parents (laughs) stepping in and advocating for them. So I think it's a lifetime skill. Self-advocacy is a lifetime skill that can benefit everybody all students, all human beings, Um, but it's especially important for kids who are outliers. And our gifted kids are definitely outliers. Our twice exceptional kids are probably two or three times outliers. And kids from underrepresented populations of gifted students are as well. Kids in rural areas or in in urban areas or kids who are underground come, come from poverty or come from families in which there is not a lot of support or understanding or access to the educational system. And so more and more as we help our kids recognize that it's they are outliers, it's okay to be outliers, that's who they are, but that might mean they need something different than the, the general mass of age level or grade level kids around them. So talk more then about why it's so critical for gifted kids to, to develop these skills. What what are they risking if they don't? Well, especially if we're talking about gifted kids getting an appropriately challenging education, if they if everything always comes easily and if kids are primarily extrinsically motivated by the good grades and high test scores and praise from parents and teachers, they don't realize that that education can be exciting and challenging on its own. And unfortunately, for some gifted kids, the grade becomes the goal or the praise becomes the goal. And therefore, they will underachieve to assure that they can get good grades, can get that 100% correct, rather than taking a risk and doing something that's challenging that will stretch them. And sometimes for gifted kids, they fail to develop those study and executive functioning skills that they need in order to be successful at more challenging things, simply because they haven't need, needed to use those. And for some students, it winds up, they don't ever reach that wall that they can't pass until they're, maybe they're even in college and they struggle there. And of course, I won't go into detail on it, but we know there are things like imposter syndrome that many brilliant people have in which they believe <laughs> that they are an imposter because they've never had to work hard at whatever they are successful at and that someday somebody's going to walk up and call them on it. Even even people like famous author Neil Gaiman have expressed concerns about that. So I'm not trying to say that, that gifted people are neurotic or have all sorts of emotional problems, but I do believe um, they lead satisfying lives and more self-actuated lives 
if they understand their abilities and accept challenges that are appropriate for them. And I'm just curious, and I don't know if this is a focus of your work, but just even in terms of identifying these kids in the classroom, how does that usually happen in the way you see it? Is it usually a parent who flags a child and and pushes for that child to be tested? Or is it typically teachers who recognize, just to be clear, giftedness isn't, um, we're not talking about kids who are necessarily just high performing or accelerated learners, but it's really a way of thinking, right, and processing information. So how, do, how is that identified typically? That's an excellent question, and it can't be met by a single answer. I can speak primarily about what I've learned about the educational system here in the United States. But as I said, I've been talking to people around the world this last two years, and it's repeated in many places around the world. We are not good at identifying gifted learners. And the amount of effort and energy put into identifying and programming for gifted learners varies based on what the laws are, what the statutes are, what funding is available, what training is available for teachers, and what information is given to parents. And it's very so much that it's hard to say one steadfast rule. Ideally, gifted kids would be identified by their school district. Most often, that is based on either achievement test scores or ability test scores, IQ test scores is the first indicator. By basing our identification of gifted kids primarily on those two types of test scores, we miss a whole lot of kids who either don't test well or don't do well on those kind of tests or aren't even considered for testing in those areas. And um, and I, we, we could spend the whole program on identification <laughs> <laughs> and yes. with that. But I think one of the best ways to help our students self-identify is to help them understand their own learner profile to reflect on the ways in which they are similar, but then the ways they're different from the learners around them. And then also to help them reflect on, are your needs being met? Do you feel challenged? Are you exploring things that you're interested in? Um, Do you have time to spend with other children who are smart or maybe smarter than you that challenge your thinking? And do you have the people around you who understand you and can support your learning needs? And quite honestly, that boils down to the four steps to self-advocacy for gifted mm-hmm. We can go back and talk about that. You know, we haven't really mentioned the definition of self-advocacy. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah. The one that I use most frequently is something I actually stole from uh, the world of special education. It was originally defined by Lauren Brinkerhoff when the IDEA um, laws were, were being created here in the United States. And he defined self-advocacy as the process of recognizing and meeting the needs specific to one's learning ability. And then I love the second phrase, without compromising the dignity of oneself or others. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, it's not just saying, this is what I want, this is what I need, I want, I want, give me, give me. It's saying, I have this particular learning need that I think could be addressed in this way, and learning how to do it so that The individual, him or herself, doesn't feel like they're being, that their dignity is being compromised, or they also, they are not compromising the dignity of other students or their teachers or their parents. One of my students once said to me, when we were talking about this in a workshop, and she said, I know exactly what you mean. I was sitting in algebra class, and I was so upset about doing all the large number of problems when I could get them done in a hurry, but I didn't even need to do them. I, I, I did one problem and I understood the concept. And she said, I just got mad. And I got up out of my seat with everyone else working at their desk and went back to my teacher. And I said, this is just plain boring. I hate this. I've got to do something different. Well, she said, he got upset with her. She saw the other kids turn their heads around and she realized suddenly that her anger and her attitude and her saying that this was easy compromise the dignity of the other kids in the class. The teacher sent an email home to her parents, and they were not ready to be told by a teacher that their child was doing something wrong. So their dignity was compromised. They called the principal. The principal's dignity was compromised because he thought that they were complaining about his teachers, and he knew he needed to defend his staff. And as Wendy said to me, it turns out everybody's dignity was compromised. And the worst thing is I didn't get what I wanted and needed. So I think that's a great example of 
if kids are taught how to ask for what they want and also to share with those people who they must ask why it is they want it and why it is better, not just for them, but in general, it's a better way of approaching things. They are much more apt to get what they need and what they want. Makes so much sense. And seems like such an easy thing to do. But and just how that one incident negatively impacted so many people. So it's such an important thing to learn. And I have several questions, but I would like actually to talk about your your steps, because I want to know how this can be done. Because just even to address the the G word, you know, Mm -hmm. that is something that there's so much stigma around. And I know that there are probably parents listening to this who are uncomfortable, even with that term, or should I let my child know that they're gifted? What does that mean for them? Will they become someone who thinks too highly of themselves? Like, I just think it's a very complicated issue. So I'd love to know how we can teach our kids these self-advocacy skills in a way that that can feel really good and maybe even address some of those concerns parents might have. Okay, I'm happy to speak about those. Um, what I've discovered in before I actually came up with my workshop, I was trying to help my students self-advocate throughout the school year. And I realized that they did not have the information they needed. They didn't have the insights about themselves or about the system, and they didn't have the tools they needed in order to do it successfully. This is boring. I hate this. Didn't we do this last year? Doesn't go very far (laughs) in creating change. And so it occurred to me as I processed all of this that, number one, in order to feel that they could self-advocate, my students needed to know they had a right to self-advocate but also that they had some responsibilities, that it was not just asking for everybody to do something for them. And we need to think in terms of what those rights and responsibilities were. And one of the rights comes directly out of the eight great gripes of gifted kids that was collected from surveys by Jim Delisle and Judy Galbraith years and years ago. And the first great gripe was, nobody tells us what gifted is all about. And I realized that even in my own practice, and even in my own role as mother of gifted children, I kept pretty quiet about it for just the reasons you said. If I tell my kids they're gifted, are they going to expect something? Are they going to think they're better than other people? Are they going to be um, elitist about themselves? Is it going to hurt them? And it finally occurred to me that we can't just tell our children they are gifted. They probably already know they're different from other kids. But we need to help them understand what that giftedness means, all the pros and cons. It needs to be a long conversation. And instead, the message kids were getting, oh, you're identified, you're in a gifted program. Okay, that just simply means you're smarter than everybody else and you ought to be getting A's. That's not the message we want to give. So in working with my gifted kids, I help them um, look at several different definitions of giftedness that have been around for a long, long time compare, contrast, weigh all the different parts, and also to help them recognize that we as adults, we as an educational community, have never settled on one good definition of giftedness. And yet, yet we know that kids with high intellectual academic ability need something different. And I show the kids the bell curve, not because I want them to post their IQ on there, but to help them understand that not only in intellectual ability, but in so many other characteristics that gifted kids have, they wind up somewhere on that bell curve. And the reason it's especially important for kids to self-advocate in an educational system is because the vast majority of what's going on in the classroom on a daily basis of necessity falls in the middle of that bell curve. Teachers, instruction, curriculum aim at that large group. And any time kids are outliers on either side of that bell curve, they need something different. We also talk about their responsibilities, not just their right for something different, but their responsibility. And of course, being bored is no excuse for doing poor homework. And gifted kids need to develop the attributes of good character that we expect all students to develop. Things like turning in your work on time and working well in groups and you know that whole list of things that, that we need to become in order to work well in a society. So the, the rights, the responsibilities... And what giftedness means is the first step of becoming able to self-advocate. Now, depending upon where the students are, the rights might include the laws that are in place or the funding that's in place or even looking at the mission statement of their school or their school district, which almost always includes as a phrase, 
something about we are here to help all children succeed or all children be challenged. And gifted kids must see themselves in that all, even though they are maybe very different from other children. I also like Jim Delisle's phrase that being gifted is means you are better at something than another person, but not necessarily does that mean you're better than that person. Better at, not better than. We'll be right back after this quick break. So in our house these days, Darren and I have been working together to up-level our nutrition and healthy lifestyle habits. Maybe it's our age, our changing bodies, my shifting hormones, whatever the reason, I'm here for it. And that's why I'm loving Green Chef, a meal company that makes eating well easy with plans to fit every lifestyle. Green Chef offers gut-friendly recipes each week and is committed to providing a holistic approach to nutrition by offering meals that contribute to the overall well-being of your entire body. Darren and I are particularly big fans of their nutrient-dense, science-backed gut and brain health recipes, developed in partnership with registered dietitians that improve digestion, reduce bloat, and also boost energy and immunity. This week's favorites? turkey, black bean, and sweet potato chili, and the Baja chicken bowls with mango salsa. I mean, don't those sound delicious? But if that's not your thing, you can choose from a variety of customized meals to suit your lifestyles with preferences like keto, vegan, vegetarian, fast and fit, Mediterranean, gluten-free, and protein-packed. Whatever you choose, you'll get farm-fresh ingredients, organic whole fruits and veggies, and premium proteins, along with chef-crafted, nutritionist-approved recipes delivered straight to your door. Go to greenchef.com slash 60tilt and use code 60tilt to get 60% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's 60% off plus 20% off your next two months when you use the code 60tilt at greenchef.com slash 60tilt. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. This year, I've been working on becoming more attuned to my body, and so I'm starting to really recognize how periodic spikes in anxiety or disruptions to my routines can seriously throw my whole system off. And as I've been traveling a ton this past month, which is both disruptive and somewhat stressful, I'm especially glad that I have the extra support of Symbiotic Plus, a three-in-one supplement from Ritual with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Symbiotic Plus provides fuel to the cells that make up the gut lining to support a healthy gut barrier. And it comes in this very cool minty delayed release capsule, which was specifically designed to help survive the harsh conditions of the upper GI tract for delivery to the colon. The bonus is that the capsules don't need to be refrigerated, so I can easily bring them with me in my carry-on. On a personal level, I love that Ritual is committed to sustainability. They're a female-founded B Corp, meaning they are holding themselves accountable long-term to not only think about their company's financial health, but also the health of people and our planet. There's no more shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com tilt. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com tilt for 25% off. Before you move on, I'm going to ask this question because it creeped up in my mind and I have a feeling my listeners are going to want to know the answer as well. And that is, what is your stance or opinion on sharing an actual IQ number with a child? It certainly depends upon the family and the child. And I know people who have decided to share that and people who have decided not to share that. Um, I think if we share that with a child as a part of the bigger picture, not simply that this is you and you're gifted because your IQ is 155 or 165 or whatever, but to say, you want the full information about yourself? Here it is. I think we as parents need to decide if that information is useful for our child and if it is when it's useful for our child. But again, it's got to be part of this whole picture. And that kind of leads in, quite honestly, to the, the second step of helping our kids understand themselves and moving towards self-advocacy. And that's recognizing and reflecting on their learner profile. Before we do though, I want to go back to one other question you had, and that's using the word gifted. There are so many euphemisms today for gifted. I use the term simply because that is the term that um, the research has used well way back to term. And so we're talking about 70, 80 years, we have used the term gifted. So it's a great term. There's nothing wrong with it. Here in Wisconsin, a lot of people have decided they're going to call them able learners. I haven't heard that before. 
or advanced learners. Neither one of those, however, describe all gifted kids. Not all gifted kids are advanced learners or necessarily even able learners, depending upon the context. And, and I also think that many of our euphemisms leave out what we know about gifted children in general, the overexcitabilities, the intensities, um, the creativeness. There, I mean, there are just gifted individuals are so complicated that by just, just saying that they're high achievers or whatever does them an injustice. So when I work with the kids, I say, I'm going to use the term gifted, and they may use lots of different terms in their school or not talk about it at all, but I've got really good reasons for just going ahead and using the G word. Mm-hmm. And once again, if you and your listeners have never read the poem, the G word, again by Jim Delisle, you'll find it online, and it's almost Dr. Seuss-like, but it, it really is a good explanation of why many of us just go ahead and use the word rather than stumble around with it. Yeah. Great. Thank you for sharing that. Mm-hmm. Um, so the second step that I work with kids on in self-advocacy, as I said, is is assessing and reflecting on their own individual learner profile. And I use the five areas of the learner profile that Karen Rogers described in her book, Reforming Gifted Education, Matching the Programs to the Child. Um, I know you can find copies of it online. It, it's an older book. I believe it was first published in 1992. But the five areas that Karen says we need to look at help us understand the bigger picture of a gifted learner. She says, of course, number one, we do look at intellectual ability and whether that's an IQ number or whether that's an assessment like in the, I keep throwing all these things out. Are you familiar with the Renzulli scales? I'm not, no. Okay, Joe Renzulli um, years ago came up with rating scales for the behavioral characteristics of gifted children. Its shortened term is the SRBCSS. Okay. <laughs> and, and again, you can find this online, but he has, I believe, 12 different assessment tools for, for educators, for parents, for whomever to look at and say, here are some characteristics. How do you rate your child in these characteristics? And many of the characteristics of the intellectual ability rating scale are things like learns quickly, has a great memory. Um, keen observer, visualizes, and I won't come up with them off the top of my head, but that's, I think, a far better way to help our kids assess their intellectual ability. How how many of these things are true about you in relationship to what you know about yourself, in relationship to the people around you? And to break down IQ or intellectual ability into specific characteristics, I think, is very helpful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very cool. I'm going to check that out. Okay, good. Um, he also has rating scales for creativity and leadership and, and uh, artistic ability and specific academic abilities. So again, um, do check them out. And, and the characteristics there help us determine a child's strength in any of those areas and maybe the greatest strengths in some areas. And that's the second part of the learner profile. What are the specific learning strengths of this gifted child? Not all gifted kids have great learning strengths in math or language arts, or languages, or whatever. So what are the areas in which this child specifically has strengths? For some gifted individuals, it may be all of them. And then it's really helpful to look at the third part of the learner profile. So where are your interests? Maybe you have strength in all these areas, but what are you really interested in? And, And to help kids assess are you interested in this because all kids your age like this? Are you interested in this because it's a family interest and you do it together and love this family time? Or is this something that you are just uniquely passionate about and maybe you don't know anyone else who has this passion? What What do you really care about? Then we also ask them to um, assess the fourth part, which is their learning preferences. How do you like to learn? What kind of strategies work best for you in a classroom? When you really have to concentrate and study, what kind of an atmosphere around you is most successful? And how do you prefer to show what you've known? Would you really rather write essays or would you really rather do short answers or quick assessments of things? Would you rather draw a schematic about something? And for kids to begin to recognize that there's no right or wrong way there, there are some ways you're going to have to show what you know you know, in university classes and that sort of thing. But if given a choice, what is the best way for you to demonstrate your understanding of something? So those are the learning preferences. And then the fifth category is personality characteristics. 
And then when I'm working on with gifted kids, I really like to focus on some of the personality characteristics that are typical of some or all gifted kids. So we talk about optimism and pessimism. We talk about introversion and extroversion, knowing that according to Linda Silverman, uh, maybe as much as two thirds of the general population is extroverted, but two thirds of the gifted population is introverted. So what bearing does that have on a gifted child's needs in the educational system? We also talk about overexcitabilities, and I can't tell you how many heads start nodding when we talk about things like, you know, does that seam in your sock bother you? <laughs> does the tag in the back of your shirt <laughs> bother you? And kids will say things like, you know, I never thought about it, but doesn't doesn't that buzzing light above us bother all of you? And some kids will go, what buzzing light? And so those sensory, emotional, psychomotor overexcitabilities that may impact students' educational setting, they need to be aware of. And they need to also feel like normalized. <laughs> and that's one of the fun things about having gifted kids together in my workshops is they may not know each other, but they leave feeling they have this great peer group because they've networked with kids who, who they understand, who understand them, and they have more similarities with than many of the kids in the regular classrooms. Well, I love the, um, I love all five of those. And I can see so much value, even in having that level of self awareness, or even just considering those questions as a kid is so wonderful. I'm such a fan of self discovery. I think it's one of the greatest gifts we can give our kids. So this is such a nice, you know, for for parents of any kids, really, this is such a nice thing to help our kids kind of reflect on. I would agree. And I think the trend in some places right now towards personalized learning allows teachers to help students reflect on their learner profiles in that way. And I agree, it's valuable for all of us. In fact, um, when I and other adults are in the workshop, we're always discovering new things about ourselves and new awarenesses. <laughs> sure. <laughs> um, the interesting thing for us as parents, however, is I know that at times I tended to think that my son's had the same kind of learning profile that I did. And I was suddenly amazed one day, I was helping my older son learn German vocabulary. And I was coming up with my own mnemonic. And suddenly he turned to me and he said, Mom, you're a visual learner, and I'm an auditory learner. I can't use your method. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. Good for you. So it's fun for us as parents to um, assess our own learner profiles when our kids are doing it and compare and contrast and to celebrate the differences as well as the ways in which we have some familial similarities. Yes, absolutely. All right. Give us step three. Step three is knowing what options are available, what opportunities either with that already exists within the educational community around us. And I say community because it may be a school district, it may be a homeschooling group, it may be an individual at home parent child educational situation. But what options and opportunities are out there? And the exciting thing about the last five to 10 years is there are more and more opportunities available, more online resources, more college courses online, more charter schools especially public charter schools that are free of charge to kids um, and more opportunities for homeschool kids to homeschool part-time and be in public schools at times. Uh, There is a book edited by Felicia Dixon and it's available from the National Association for Gifted Children. It's called Programs and Services for Gifted Secondary Students. And the reason I especially like it, even though it's for secondary students, it gives elementary and middle school students a chance to look ahead at what might be available down the road and help them to plan what they might do in the future. But it also gives them an idea of things that they may be ready for, accelerated opportunities that they might be ready for at a younger age. And I recommend the book for um, all the options and opportunities that they they mention. I also Um, hope that students look beyond um, the formal educational system to recognize opportunities in their community for coursework outside, maybe coursework at colleges and universities um, for younger students, and to consider a variety of options, actually, that might include extracurricular activities, clubs, and organizations that would allow them to explore interests or to um, network with other students, maybe of different age levels who have the same passion they do. So 
find out about options and opportunities, and then most importantly, to match them to the student profile and to think in terms of, is this an option you can be successful at? And just to give you a brief story, I, I realized after reading Karen Rogers' book, because Reforming Gifted Education, subtitle is Matching the Program to the Child, that at times in my life as an educator, I had created an option for a student that m- might not have been right for them. For instance, Micah um, was really struggling with math, not because he couldn't do math, but because he didn't have support from home. He didn't have a quiet place to study. Um, he came from a very disadvantaged family that that really didn't know how to help him access the community. And I knew he could go faster in math, so I put him on a computerized, self-paced math program in a small little um, office next to the math department's head where he could get help and support anytime he needed it. And within the first week, instead of doing two years of math, Mike had taken the computer apart. <laughs> Which was fascinating. Um, and he actually put much of it back together. But that, that wasn't what he needed at that point. He, because of his background, needed a mentor who could help him find ways to be successful at math, be successful at his schoolwork, despite some of the disadvantages he was facing. So I think it's so important for us as parents and educators, and especially for students who have reflected on their learner profile to say, yeah, this is an option I like, and this is also an option I could be successful at. So that's step number three. And that leads us right into step number four, which is connecting with advocates who can support the student's plan. Because we know that students on their own, especially if they begin to self-advocate, really need adults and and maybe sometimes other students around them who can help them on their path. Mm-hmm. And learning how to approach them appropriately, how to ask appropriately, makes a big, big difference. I once had a student say to the principal, I just want to change this class to the afternoon, and then came back to me and said I wasn't very successful. The principal said, what if I changed everyone's classes? And I said, well, did you tell them why you wanted to change your class to the afternoon? And she said, no. I said, lay out the whole thing for the principal. So she went back to him and she said, I'm not much of a morning person and just getting up and getting to school on time is, is a struggle for me, but I do it. But I'd like to have Jim first thing in the morning and I'd like to have my math class in the afternoon when my brain's really awake and alert and I can really do well on a subject that I adore, math. Well, with that explanation, a reason behind what she wanted, the principal said, oh yeah, okay, we can do that. That's not a problem. So, so often for our students, the understanding of themselves and what their needs are and to be able to articulate it clearly to a supportive adult means the difference between a plan that succeeds and a plan that fails. We'll be right back after this quick break. Hey there, it's Debbie. I love making this show and sharing conversations about how to support our awesome neurodivergent kids. I've seen how even one little insight from an interview can spark a big shift in daily life. But I know that raising complex kids can be messy and lonely. And just when we think we figured it out, something comes up that boots us right back to feeling overwhelmed and stuck. That's why I've poured everything into creating a way for parents like us navigating complex parenting journeys to join together and chart a path that feels positive, hopeful, and doable. It's the brand new Differently Wired Club experience. In the club, you'll get personal support from me and other seasoned parent coaches, six live calls every month where you can connect and get your personal questions answered, the opportunity to learn directly from authors and experts like I have on this show, monthly themes for getting specific and tactical, an exclusive private podcast feed, and the best, most generous community of parents. Seriously, these folks show up for themselves and each other, and that right there is really everything. Because it's a daily reminder that we're not alone. Our kids aren't broken, and we have totally got this. The recently rebooted Differently Wired Club is on a brand new platform with its very own iOS and Android app. It is such a great space. However you learn, whatever your style, no matter the ages, genders, and neurodivergent profile of your children, the Differently Wired Club can help you cultivate the positive shifts you're hoping for. Join us today by going to tiltparenting.com slash club. That's tiltparenting.com slash club. I hope to see you on the inside. 
When it comes to raising kids, there's so much to consider. Things like, what do we feed them? When do we feed them? How do they sleep? What does it look like to raise kind kids? How does their nervous system work? How do I keep myself calm? What are my triggers? There's so much that comes into play, and we are distilling all of that information for you at Voices of Your Village podcast, where we bring experts in the field of early childhood and education and psychology and across the board so that you don't have to comb the internet for information. You get to show up and hang out and have shame-free, judgment-free conversations and insights into what it looks like to raise kind, empathetic, emotionally intelligent humans. I'm Alyssa Blask Campbell. I have a master's degree in early childhood education. I'm a mom of two, and I am walking this journey right alongside you doing this work. Come hang out with me at Voices of Your Village, and we can dive into real conversations with actionable tips. I mean, and I imagine there's a lot of trial and error, right? It's not that the kids are going to like get these skills right away and then boom, they're great advocates. Like they're probably going to have a lot of experiences that don't go so well, but those are where the learning happens, I imagine. Perfectly said, Debbie. <laughs> Thank you. That's exactly it. And, and our support, whether we're educators or parents or grandparents or friends around them, is, is what helps them get through those non-successful attempts, rethink them and decide, okay, is this something I still want to pursue? Or am I okay leaving this one aside, and I will have a new goal. Um, In the workshop, by the afternoon, the students each have selected a goal of something that they would like to change, either a short term goal of changing something immediate now or for next year, or a long term goal, but a specific goal. And then they create an action plan around that goal. I've discovered that most of their goals fall into kind of four categories. Many of the kids want a a more appropriate challenge in one area or another. Some students want to explore an interest that isn't currently in front of them. Maybe it's something that's not offered in their school or they just don't have the opportunity or the means of exploring it. Thirdly, some students want time with more time with other kids like themselves. In, In U.S. public schools, most of our gifted kids are not in gifted schools or gifted classrooms, or even gifted cluster groups, the vast majority in public education are still in heterogeneous classrooms. And one of the biggest complaints I have from gifted kids is that um, working in groups is so difficult when they're always expected to carry the heavy load or be the leader or be the instructor. And so many times they say, I just want to be with somebody who likes this as much as I do, is passionate, or maybe challenges my thinking a little. And then the fourth area is some of them want to change either home or school to adapt them to their personal characteristics we're talking about. So it might be as simple as that girl saying to the teacher, this light above me is buzzing and it really bothers me. Can I just change my desk to the other side of the room? Or something as simple as the young woman who was a night owl changing her class schedule to better accommodate her her sleep cycle. Or, or somebody setting up a quiet study place in their home or putting together a a group with a school counselor on perfectionism and those kind of things, a lot of the kids decide that that's the first thing they want to tackle, not an academic challenge. It makes sense, especially these kids know themselves so well. Being able to then articulate, it must be super empowering and to be able to realize, oh, I can actually affect my environment. And so many of them are so sensitive, so I could see the power in that. Well, and I like the fact that they leave the workshop as I said, with a plan, a real simple action plan, but simply what are the steps that I have to carry out in order to get achieve my goal? And then who's going to take these steps? And they can start out with me and Mrs. Douglas <laughs> are going to uh, do these first few steps. And then they begin to see how some of the steps they can take over themselves and eventually be the initiator of those changes. And then the third part of their action plan is simply a date by which it's going to be done. Because believe it or not, being gifted does not necessarily mean you're organized. (laughs) And being gifted um, does not preclude being a procrastinator. (laughs) So tranquilly, just having those dates of when it's going to be done that can be checked off. And for many kids, that really is, as simple as it sounds, the key to making the change. And then, as you said before, you get to the end of this. And if you haven't made the changes you want to change then you re-gear. Do we go back and do, do we find a different way of achieving this? Or is it okay to just let, let this goal go? 
That's so great. Thank you so much for sharing the four-step process. It makes absolute sense. And there's just a lot of nuggets in there, in addition to all the great resources that you shared, which just to let listeners know, I will I will go back and I will compile everything and include it in the show notes pages because I want to make sure we can all find those books and the other resources that you shared with us. But before we go, I would love to know, you know, for listeners who who have a gifted kid who, you know, they're listening to this and they're like, oh, gosh, I really want to get me some of this. Like, I want to help my kid on this path of self-advocacy. Can you give maybe one tip or strategy that they could start of where they can start today? Of course. The first thing I would say is simply ask your child, how are things going? How is school going? How are your lessons going? How are you feeling about about yourself and about your life as a as a gifted or a bright or however we want to call it individual? And then the second thing is to listen. And for some of us, sometimes that's one of the most difficult parts because I found myself and listening to my own children, I wanted to rush to explain that, you know, this is how things are, or sometimes just denying their feelings or minimalizing their concerns. Or problem solving, right? Going right into problem solving. Yep, yep. Or providing our own answers and our our own solutions for what they might want to do. So listening is so important. And as we do that, to ask them the questions that that will lead them to find their own answers. And then together to act with the children. And I think first thing is to gather information about their learner profile, gather information about the options that are around us, consider those options and help them to weigh those options in relationship to their own learner profile and what their own abilities are. And then just like I said, like I do in the workshop, set one goal that they would like to set for themselves and figure out what do we need to do to achieve that goal, but to make sure that it's a goal of their own. Now, there's one other thing you might do, and this sounds like we're coming at it from the negative, but um, I ask gifted kids to tell me what their gripes are. Too often, I think, Gifted kids feel like if they complain about anything, the response from adults is, you are so lucky to be so bright, or you are so fortunate, or think, aren't you glad you don't have to struggle like some students? And so they don't tend to tell us what their concerns and their frustrations are. When I ask that question in, um, in the workshops, I get dead silence for a little while. And then I hand them another resource you'll want to have. Um, Eight Great Gripes of Gifted Kids. Again, this comes from Jim DeLisle and Judy Galbraith's book, Teen Survival Guide for Gifted Kids Survival Guide. And the kids read through the, in my workshop, read through these gripes and they either cross out or they circle things and then they start talking to each other and they discover that many of them share similar gripes and frustrations. And if we, I hate to say start there with our kids, but if we let them express those frustrations to us and then say, What's the greatest frustration? How would you like to change that? And let's turn that frustration into a plan for change. Let's together work on a way to eliminate that. That's another really good way we can we can begin with our um, students and let them be honest with us about what it's like, the pros and the cons of being a gifted individual. Hmm, that's great. I just have to say that if my child were in that workshop and asked about the gripes, he would have no problem sharing. (laughs) Just have to say that. So before we go, can you just let listeners know where they can learn more about you and and find you online? Yes, um, I have a website. My workshops are called GT for Gifted and Talented, GT Carpe Diem. So my website is uh, gtcarpediem.com. I also have a Facebook page that's gtcarpediem. I also have my personal <laughs> Facebook page and and I tweet at deb period douglas 52. Okay. Well, again, listeners, I will include links to all of Deb's contact information and social media on the show notes page. And can, can I give one last little promo? Yeah, please. Um, last year, I, I published my workshop facilitator guide and all of the resources with Free Spirit Publishing. And it's all in a book called The Power of Self-Advocacy for Gifted Learners, Teaching the Four Essential Steps to Success. And it's available from Free Spirit Publishing. It's available at Amazon and Barnes and Noble Online and all those places. And everything I've been talking about today is expanded on in the book and there's more. And I'm very happy to answer any questions 
instead of that or beyond that, if people want to email me, and there's contact information on my website or else through Facebook. Perfect. Well, this has been so insightful. I think we'll have to discuss bringing you back on again for another episode, because I think that there's a lot more that we could get into, but so many great takeaways. I know I learned a lot. And again, you know, I think even for parents who are listening, who whose kids aren't gifted, there's still many valuable tools here uh, that they can incorporate in helping their child just understand who they are as a learner and how they can get what they need. So I really appreciate you coming by today and sharing all of this with us. Oh, Deb, thanks for this opportunity to share what's my passion now, as you can tell. I can hardly (laughs) stop talking about it. So I, I appreciate the platform and I'm happy to talk anytime. You've been listening to the Tilt Parenting Podcast. For the show notes for this episode, visit tiltparenting.com slash podcast and search for this conversation. If you like what you heard on today's episode, I would be grateful if you could take a minute to head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating or a review. Thank you so much for helping us stay visible so people who would benefit from the show can easily find it. If you want to support the show and help me cover the cost of production, please consider joining my Patreon campaign. To support the show, just visit patreon.com slash Tilt Parenting. Lastly, if you aren't already part of the online community at Tilt, I invite you to sign up at tiltparenting.com and the box in the bottom where it says join the revolution. Every Thursday, I send out a short email with a quick note from me, a link to that week's podcast episode, and links to five stories from the news that week that are relevant to parents like us. Again, you can sign up and learn more about Tilt at www.tiltparenting.com. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.